Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22 this morning. If you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, the blue ones, you can find it on page 1118. 1118, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I wonder, have you ever driven through a really bad rainstorm? And by really bad, I mean really bad. The kind where you've got your windshield wipers on full blast and you're not sure if they're actually going to stay connected. But the water's coming down so fast, I mean, you assume that there are lane lines on the road. But you have to assume because you can't see them at all. So when it's going that bad, when the rain's coming down and you can't see, what do you do to keep going? Some of you are like, well, I'd pull over. Yeah, maybe that's smart. But let's assume you're like me and you're like, no, I got to keep going. What do you do in that case? What I always hope for when this happens is that there's a couple of cars, at least one, but a car or two around me that has their lights on because as long as I can see their lights in front of me or beside me, if I can see their lights... I have reference points, right, to help me stay where I need to be, even if I have no idea where my lane lines are. I can't see them, I can't see those lines, but I can see their lights. And so they keep me roughly about where I need to be. They keep me on the right path when I can't see my lane. Well, this morning, as we are driving through 1 Peter, we come to a bit of a monsoon. The rains are falling and it's hard to see. And I say that because we've come to one of the most difficult passages to understand in the New Testament. Martin Luther, if you know anything about Martin Luther, he was a man who didn't lack for confidence. He was always free to say what he thought. And yet when he came to this passage, here's what he said about verses 18 and 19 in particular. He said, this passage is as strange a text and as dark a saying as any in the New Testament, so that I'm not yet sure what St. Peter is saying. Now you can imagine as I read that this week how encouraging that was for me to read as I thought, okay, I'll try to explain this. But here's the good news this morning. We have some car lights to keep us on the right track. So here's some car lights that are going to help us. Even as we're driving through the confusion and the hard, it's hard to see with some of this stuff in here, we've got some car lights, and here's what they are. First, 
the beginning and the end of our passage are really clear. There's no ambiguity. And the good news is, not only are they perfectly straightforward, they're filled with glorious truth. And so one principle I want you to remember, whenever we come to passages like this that are difficult, hard to understand, always remember, don't miss what's clear by focusing on what's unclear. Okay, that's any passage you come to, if there's some tricky parts, don't get so hung up on the things that are unclear that you miss the main point of what's clear. Peter has a main point here, and if we don't get all the details just right, we can still be sure of the main thing he's trying to tell us. Now, a second thing to remember is it's also good when we come to difficult passages, we shouldn't just skip them, right? That's one of the beauties of working through books is, man, I would have loved to say, hey, Pastor Ben, how about you take this week? Um, You can handle this, but no, we're going to take this because it's in our Bibles. But we don't just skip them, but here's what we do. We should come to them with appropriate humility, okay? There's a time where you just need to look at it and you say, I've racked my brain, I've gone as hard as I can, but at the end of the day, I'm not 100% sure on some of the points. So there will be points today where I'm going to tell you why I believe a certain understanding. I'll I'll make a case for it, but I'll also tell you, like Luther, I'm not sure on that point, and that's okay. Now, the second set of car lights we have to guide us, so we've got the beginning and the end of our passage, but the second set of car lights we have to guide us are what comes right before our passage and what comes right after. Look in your Bibles. Right before our passage, in chapter 3, verse 17, Peter told the Christians he's writing to, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Okay, so that's what comes right before. And if you move up a little bit more, up in verses 14 and 15, he told them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, so as Pastor Ben explained to us last week, don't fear, instead, hallow Christ as your treasure. Okay, so that's what he said right before this. Now, look down at your Bible again. You notice that our passage in verse 18 starts with the word for. Okay, now that's, that's there for reasons. It tells us, okay, whatever we're going to talk about here in 18 to 22, it's going to give us a reason why it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So whatever Peter's point is in these verses, it's meant to help them not fear, but revere Christ. Okay, so having that, okay, that gives us some tracks to run on. We got a car light out there to see, right? Now look at what comes right after our passage. Drop your eyes down in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So in our passage, he's going to tell them why they should suffer for doing good. And then after that, he says, Because of what you're going to see today, therefore you should have the same purpose to be ready to suffer for doing good. Why should you have the same purpose? Because of what's in our passage this morning. So our passage is kind of like the meat in a sandwich, right? It's right in the middle, and it's helping prepare us to be ready to suffer for doing good and giving us reasons why. The context before and after, the clear beginning and end, those are our car lights this morning. Those are the things that we know for certain. 
And so even if we can't see all the lanes in the middle, we're going to keep our eyes on those and they're going to keep us on the right path. Okay? So let's also just get it out in the beginning here. What's Peter's main point? You can kind of think of this as, I'm going to keep using this metaphor. So what's the destination Peter's trying to get us to as we're driving through some of this rain? Here's what he wants us to see. Believers don't need to fear evil as we suffer because Jesus has triumphed over evil through suffering and by faith in him, we too will triumph. It's kind of long, so let me say it one more time. Believers don't need to fear evil as we suffer because Jesus has triumphed over evil through suffering and by faith in him, we too will triumph. So we're going to look at this victory of Jesus in four points this morning. If you want to go ahead and throw those up. So all under the banner of Christ's victory through suffering. First we're going to see Christ's victory over sin. Then Christ's victory over evil. Then we're going to see Christ's victory shared with us. And finally Christ's victory over every enemy. Okay, so a lot to get through so let's get started. Look with me again at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, so remember, I said that the beginning and the end are crystal clear, right? So here's the good news, is that this verse is crystal clear, and it's crystal clear about something that's really, really good news. In fact, as I thought about this verse, verse 18 is like a clown car of gospel truth. You guys ever seen a clown car? It's this dinky little car that looks so totally unimpressive and then one after another, clowns just keep getting out and you're like, how in the world are there that many clowns in that little car, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody else seen a clown car? That is a thing, right? Nods, okay. Okay, make sure you're with me this morning. Otherwise, this analogy will not work at all if you don't understand what a clown car is. Well, this verse is like that clown car. It's, it's really short, but it's bursting with good news that just keeps coming out. And it shows us why it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So let me walk you through six gospel gems that just keep piling out of this verse, one after another. Okay? First, we're reminded in verse 18 that Christ also suffered. Don't just gloss over that word also. As Peter writes to these suffering Christians, facing persecution, facing ostracism, facing who knows what kind of retribution because they follow Jesus, he wants them to remember that the Savior we follow also suffered. He knows what it is to suffer. He's been there. And when we suffer for his sake, we're simply walking in the path he's laid out for us. In fact, Paul writes in Philippians 3, Paul says, Oh, that I may know him and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's kind of, he's got this bent saying, Yeah, I want to be like Jesus. Jesus suffered, I want to be like Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, when we face suffering as Christians, it helps us to remember that Christ our King also suffered. 
Second gospel gem we see is that Christ suffered for sins. Again, small words, massive importance. Because sin is the greatest single problem that you and I will ever face in our entire lives. And I know that's said, but I don't want you to just hear that as like, I've heard that phrase before, but let that land on you. What it means, think of the biggest obstacles you have faced or even the, the obstacles that you are afraid you might someday face. Sin is bigger than all of them combined. It's far worse than any suffering you could possibly ever face. Why? Because Isaiah 59 tells us, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The worst problem every human being has to grapple with is the fact that because of our sin, we are separated from God. And you need to hear that. If you're here this morning and just assume that you roll out of bed each day like just by default, that everybody's good with God, the Bible says no, sin has separated us from God. Now, sin is all the ways that we disobey God, all the ways we rebel against him by living our own ways for our own glory instead of living his ways for his glory. Every time we do what we shouldn't or every time we don't do what we should, every time we fail to love him with all of our heart, every time we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, that's sin. And because of sin, the Bible makes clear that we are separated from God. And because of that, we all deserve to face the suffering of the wrath of God. Which is why it is massively good news when you scan your eyes down to the passage and you read, Christ suffered for sins. Because Jesus died, if you are trusting in him, sin is no longer hanging over your head, waiting at any minute to crush you. Why? Because Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. On the cross, Jesus dealt with the single greatest problem we'll ever face, and he overcame our greatest enemy. And because he suffered for sins, we can and are forgiven and freed from every sin. If that weren't enough, they keep piling out. The third gospel gem we see is that Jesus didn't just die for sins, he died for sinners, right? His suffering and death was a substitution. One thing in place of the other. That's substitution. It's why we sang a little bit ago, in our place, condemned he stood. There was a place of condemnation and Jesus took our place and gave us his. And in that little phrase down in verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous, oh, every word matters. Because in that little phrase, we see who Jesus is, we see who we are, and we see why he died. Look at it again. First, who's Jesus? He's the righteous one. As Peter said up in chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. Think about that. Not once, not once in his life did Jesus ever disobey God. Not once did he give in to temptation. Not once did he lie. Not once did he say something sinful with his mouth. Not once did he get jealous. Not once did he grumble. 
He always and perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he always and perfectly loved his neighbor. That's why we could sing, in his living, in his suffering, neither trace nor stain of sin. He's the only person in human history who didn't deserve to face the suffering of God's wrath. And yet he did. Why? He faced the suffering we deserve so that you and I wouldn't have to, friends. He took our place. That's what it means when it says he suffered for us. That's Jesus. Okay, but who did, who did he suffer for? Right? Was it a bunch of pretty good people? You know, not perfect people, but pretty good people who were trying their best. That's why a lot of people explain themselves, right? If you ask, what do you think? Like, why would you go to heaven? Like, well, I'm a pretty good person. Not perfect, but I'm doing my best, right? So is that who Jesus suffered for? Pretty good people trying their best? No. Who does he suffer for? The unrighteous. That's who he dies for. Jesus came. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. To seek and save the lost. To save sinners. He came to welcome the weakest, the vilest, the poor. In other words, he came to welcome you and I. Friends, this is the wonder of the gospel. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. That's who's standing over here. And so who takes our place? Spotless lamb of God was he. We deserved everything coming to us, and Jesus deserved none of it, and yet he took all of it. This is unbelievable. Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous. Fourth, this death that he died for the unrighteous was once for all. Do you see that there? Says he suffered once for sins. As Hebrew nine, Hebrews 9 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why he cried, It is finished. He didn't need to do it again. He didn't need to come back a week later, a year later, a millennium later. He finished it. There's nothing left to do. So today, what that means, friends, that if you were in Christ, there's no amount of good things you need to do to finish what Jesus started. There's no amount of Bible reading, no amount of good works, no amount of withholding something in your life. There's nothing you can do, either big or small, that can add to what Jesus has done. In fact, on his to-do list, on his divine to-do list, Jesus has looked at the line that says, pay for sins, and it is crossed out in big black marker. Because it's done. It's off the list and he doesn't need to do it anymore. And if you are in Christ, you are forgiven and no matter what you've done or how many times you've done it, it's paid for once and for all. And while I was very, very tempted to say that's the best news ever, it's actually the second best. Because the next gospel gym is the best news ever. And that's the reason why Jesus suffered for our sins once and for all. It wasn't just so that we'd be forgiven. And it wasn't just so that we wouldn't face God's wrath. As good as those things are, and they are really good, the best news of the gospel is that Jesus died 
that he might bring us to God. We get God. We who were far off because of our sin have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been reconciled to the one who made us. Wouldn't you love to know and meet the one who made you? We've been reconciled to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. There are so many days I feel like I don't know myself that well at all. And yet my maker knows me intimately. Before a word is on my tongue, he knows it completely. He has reconciled us to the one who's loved us before we were even born. People in this life, they've, they've known us through context. And so you always have to wonder, do you just love me because of what I do? If I do the wrong thing, will you stop loving me? If you were in Christ, Jesus loved you before you were born and had done anything, either good or bad. He's reconciled us to the one who's given his own son for us. I mean, think about the people in your life who've given you the most. God gave his son for you. And he's reconciled us to the one who promises to never turn away from doing good to us. Friends, we've been brought near to the one in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is the best part of the gospel. Don't ever, don't ever put this lower on the list thinking the best thing is I don't get in trouble. The best thing is there's no consequences. The best thing is that I just, I feel better about myself. No, the best thing about the gospel is you get God. And how did he accomplish all this? That's our, that's our sixth and last gospel gem here. It says he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, he died for us, but he didn't stay dead. Instead, he was made alive in, or some translations will say by, the Spirit when he was raised. And it's only through this death and through this resurrection that we are brought to God. Okay? So that's a lot. But verse 18 has some crystal clear good news for us. We don't need to fear, but can suffer for doing good because through his suffering... Christ is victorious over our sin, and we've been brought to God. But now, in verses 19 and 20, now we get to the most difficult part of the passage to understand. The challenge with this section is that there's not just one thing that's hard for us to say for sure what it means. There's actually several. And how you interpret one has ripple effects for how you interpret the others. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it for you again. Then I'm going to tell you the main questions we have to answer. And then tell you what I believe it's saying and why. Okay, so first look at it again with me. Look at verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. So here are the main questions. Not all of them, but the main questions we need to answer to understand this passage. Who are the spirits in prison? Where did Jesus go? And what did he say to them? Okay, that's the main thing. That will kind of give us our understanding of this text. So how do we put this together? Well, let me first rule out one interpretation that is out there historically. You may have heard this. Some people believe that what this is describing is Jesus descending to hell 
between the crucifixion and the resurrection to preach the gospel to the people in hell. This is not what it's saying. We know this simply can't be what it means because the Bible consistently tells us that once we die, there are no more chances to be saved. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's clear. There are no second chances. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, I want that to land on you for a minute. Don't just take that in as a, a data point. But think about what that means. If you think that you can just live however you want and you'll wait and once you die, you'll sort it all out with God, it's too late. That's why the Bible pleads with us today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Instead, turn from that sin and run to Jesus and his saving work and you will find the mercy that is more than all your sins. None of us knows how long we have, so do not wait until you die because there are no second chances. So that's not what it's saying. So if we rule out that option, we're left with two primary ways to put this verse together, okay? There's a few lesser, lesser held views, but these are the two main ways to put the verses together. The first interpretation sees the pr spirits in prison as the unsaved people who were alive during the time of Noah. According to this view, what it's saying is that Christ went in the spirit, you know, in which he went, he went in the spirit to proclaim the gospel through Noah. The unbelievers of the day heard this, but they did not obey, and so they are now suffering judgment in prison. This could be. This is it's a widely held view dating all the way back to St. Augustine. Here's a couple reasons why this view makes sense. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter himself calls Noah a herald of righteousness. In other words, a preacher of righteousness. So you've got this idea of Noah preaching. Peter already told us in this book, back in chapter 1 verse 11, that the spirit of Christ, there's that spirit language, was speaking through the Old Testament prophets. So if Noah's held to be one of those prophets, it's possible that that's what it's talking about. So those are a couple, couple reasons why this, that could be it. The second interpretation would understand the spirits as fallen angels or demons. So according to this view, during the time of Noah, these fallen angels disobeyed God and were cast into prison to await the final judgment. So in this view, what Peter's describing for us is when Christ went to where these spirits are now, when he ascended, and he went not to preach the gospel to them, but to proclaim his victory over them and their judgment that was coming. Okay, now while I think a case can be made for either, I think Peter intends us to see the spirits as these fallen angels. And here's why. Let me just give you three short reasons. First, that word spirits, whenever it's plural like that, meaning more than one, there's only one time in the New Testament it's used about people. And there, there's another word with it that makes it crystal clear. 
every other time, over 30 times it's used in the plural, it's always referring to demonic beings, unclean spirits. Okay, so there's that. Second reason, the concept of prison is never used in the New Testament to talk about someplace humans would be after death. There's just nowhere else that uses language like that. On the other hand, it is used to talk about Satan and demonic beings. A couple examples. Revelation 20, verse 7. says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Or Peter himself, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. You see a very similar thing in Jude 6 as well. The third reason I think it's the fallen angels is that when Peter says went in verse 19, do you see that down there? He uses the same word in the same form that he uses down in verse 22 when he describes Jesus going into heaven at the ascension. So verse 19, he went and proclaimed. Verse 22, he went into heaven. So it seems likely that Peter's talking about the same thing in both verses. In verse 19, he proclaimed his victory over these fallen angels. And in verse 22, these same fallen angels, authorities, and powers are now subject to him. You see that? So that's, like I said, am I positive? Would, would I die for this interpretation? Nope. But that's after a lot of thought and study, that's where I'm at. I think these spirits are fallen angels. But even more than that, here's what I want you to see, actually. This was helpful. In either of those interpretations, the main point is the same. The point is Christ has triumphed over great evil. I say great evil because you got to remember what the earth was like in the days of Noah. He points us back to a specific time and place. Genesis 6 tells us, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So it was bad. The wickedness was so great, in fact, that God judged the world with the most severe judgment that the world has ever seen or will see until the last day. The flood was so catastrophic, it literally wiped out all flesh. It was so catastrophic because the world had become so corrupt. So if you look at the judgment, the judgment fits the crime. And if there was that big a judgment, you can see how bad evil had gotten. Now we know from the verse that it said mankind was evil, and if we're right, and we're understanding Peter correctly, there were also some angels who were disobedient at the same time, and most likely were contributing to and perhaps influencing the evil of mankind. So whichever interpretation is right, whichever one, either way, Christ triumphs over great evil. Let me show you. If it's the spirits, if the spirits are the unsaved people, Even though that they rejected his preaching, Jesus triumphs over them by saving his believing people through the judgment that he carried out on the disobedient people. So if it's them, 
Jesus wins. If the spirits are fallen angels, Jesus goes and proclaims to them that he's defeated them by his death and resurrection. And in fact, I think that victory is what Paul talks about in Colossians 2 when he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. But what I want you to see is either way, Peter's point is that even in one of the world's most evil times, Christ was victorious over evil. Now to see if we're on the right track, we should ask the question, okay, if that's the case, why would Peter want to make that point to his audience? Like why does he go down this rabbit trail? Is he just throwing some random confusing stuff at us? I don't think so. I want you to think about Noah's situation, Noah and his family. Here was a very small minority, eight people in fact, compared to the rest of the world. Here was a small minority living in the midst of an incredibly evil society, likely facing persecution for living in a way that seemed so weird and so backwards to the world around them. I mean, the guy was building a massive boat. You don't think he got jeers and slanders? And this band of believers endured suffering while God's patience waited to deliver them. The suffering wasn't a day a month, a year. We don't know exactly how long it took to build the ark, but it was a long, long time. And yet, God prepared an ark for these people so that they could be brought safely through water. Literally, in your Bible, what it says, it says so they could be saved through water. The waters of the flood were these waters of judgment that destroyed all flesh on the earth. They wiped out all evil. And the only way this small band of believers was saved was through trusting God's promise by getting into the ark he provided to save them through those same waters. So God triumphed over the great evil of Noah's day by judging the wicked and saving his people who trusted in him. And Peter wants his readers to know, hey, if God could save that small persecuted band of believers from the evil they suffered... He can save you too. In fact, isn't that exactly where Peter goes next in verse 21? Look there. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, baptism corresponds to something. There's, there's something that it's a picture of. What, it, what is the this he's referring to? Well, it's what came right before it. It's being saved through water. Peter is saying that Noah and his family being saved through the ark was a picture meant to show us what's happening to us in baptism. Do you see the parallels? In the flood, the waters represented judgment and death for sin. Right? That's why God sent the flood. is because the wickedness was so great, so he sent these waters of judgment and it wiped out all flesh. So in baptism, we go under the waters to symbolize that when Jesus died, we died with him. And he took our judgment for sin. He died the death we deserve. If we were alive in Noah's day, we should have been on the outside of the ark. 
There's nothing about us that commends us to like we earned a spot inside. We would have been on the outside and us going underwater in baptism is saying, Jesus went under for me and so now I'm identifying with him. That's why Romans 6.3 says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So just like the waters of the flood brought death and judgment, so too the waters of baptism represent Jesus bearing our judgment and are dying with him. But just like God saved Noah and his family through the waters of judgment, God saves us now too. How does he do it? Look down at verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, the resurrection is what brings us back up out of the water. If you ever think about the picture, I always usually joke when I'm telling people what to do, like, we haven't had any drownings yet. Like, but the thing is, according to our sin, we all deserve just to go down. The resurrection is what brings us back up out of the water. Because Romans 6 tells us that it's what brings us out of the waters of death. It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, going under, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, coming back up. So what we see pictured in baptism is not just Jesus' victory over sin and evil, but his sharing that victory with us. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has won, not just that he won, but we share in his victory. But we need to be very clear on something here, don't we? Verse 21 says, Baptism now saves you. That might land on your ears funny. I hope it kind of does. So does that mean that if you just get baptized, you're saved? The answer is no. And Peter actually wants to make that clear here. That's why he says it saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. What's he saying? In other words, nothing magical happens just by putting your body underwater. Baptism is not a mechanical thing. Water can wash away dirt from your body, but not the sins from your soul. Getting baptized does not make you right with God or make you a Christian, or guarantee that you will go to heaven. It's not simply a box you check. So the question is, okay, well then how does baptism save us? As an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, baptism is the symbol of us acknowledging that our consciences apart from Jesus are stained with sin. I don't have a good conscience. In fact, I have an evil conscience. But we appeal to God. We call on him to forgive us and give us a good, clean conscience because of the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place. It's us showing that we believe his promise in Hebrews 9, where it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, because the righteous died for the unrighteous, we can have clean consciences and be brought to God. Which is exactly what Hebrews 10 tells us, right? Let us draw near, do you hear it? 
brought to God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, that's how baptism saves us. Not because of the water and not because of the act itself, but because of our faith in Jesus' victory through his death and resurrection. And by faith in his victory, we get to share in it. 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. That brings us to our final point. Christ's victory over every enemy. Look at verse 22. He says, Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is actually a a really fitting text for today because this Sunday is what many parts of the church have traditionally observed called Ascension Sunday. So whenever the church does it, what they do is they celebrate exactly what this text is telling us. What's that? That after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended to heaven to sit at God's right hand in a place of authority and power. In fact, that's where he is right now, this morning, ruling and reigning over all creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. Because all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. And every evil and demonic power, whether angels, authorities, or powers, they're all subject to him. He is the one before whom every knee will bow. We sang earlier, I hope to feel this, we got to remember that as we think about our enemy, these demonic powers, on earth is not his equal. You and I on our own can't go toe-to-toe with these angels, authorities, and powers. They are not to be trifled with. And yet, Jesus says, stay down. And they have to stay down. Peter wants his readers to remember as they face opposition and persecution so that they know in their suffering Jesus still reigns and rules. Friends, no matter what evil or unjust suffering we face, Jesus is stronger. We don't need to fear because Jesus is at God's right hand, ruling over every detail of your life. No enemy can ultimately harm you or separate you from the love of God because Jesus is victorious over every enemy. Please remember that he has not surrendered believers to the power of evil forces, even if we suffer unto death. Jesus is that word above all earthly powers. And because he is at God's right hand, we can and we should let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let me sum it up this way. Let me go back to my picture at the very beginning. I know we drove through some heavy rains in the middle of this passage. If you still have questions about that, it's a great thing to talk about. Some things that were maybe hard to see. 
But let me ask you again, don't lose sight of the taillights that we have to guide us. What's clear in this passage is that we can take heart in our suffering because Jesus also suffered. And through his suffering, he is victorious over sin and evil and every enemy that would stand opposed to you and God. And by faith in him, we share in his victory, even as we face evil and suffering in our own lives. So take heart, Christian. Christ has overcome. And thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise your son this morning as the victorious one. Lord, no enemy is able to withstand him. Lord, there is not some great cosmic duel between the forces of good and evil evenly matched with it going back and forth, not sure of the outcome. Your son has proven decisively, once and for all, that he is Lord. God, we thank you that he has triumphed victoriously over our sin so that it no longer stands between us and you. We thank you that he has triumphed over evil so that we know that evil does not get the last word in our world. Thank you that he has triumphed over every enemy. So no matter what demonic forces or evil spirits are out there, we don't need to fear because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So God, we praise you this morning for your victory and we worship you as your people that you have so graciously allowed to share in the victory of our King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.